netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. I'm Jeff Huser. You know, the FX Podcast, we normally do an introduction here, and I tell you that we do many podcasts, but you can check that all out for yourself over at fxguide.com slash podcasts. You can see all the audio and video podcasts that we do there. But I'm excited today to jump right in to a podcast, an interview with um, Andrew Jackson, the visual effects supervisor for Mad Max Fury Road, and also with the colorist, Eric Whip. So it's a two-part interview with Mike Seymour doing the interview, and we're going to start with Andrew Jackson, the visual effects supervisor. It's a great conversation. Mike used to work with him, so it's one of those conversations that people that know each other, so you could kind of get into this comfort level, and I think you're going to really feel that. You know, it's kind of a timely discussion. There's been a lot of discussion about this movie, Mad Max, being so much photography um, in camera as opposed to effects. And there's been articles, I'm sure if you're in any kind of social media, you've been inundated with articles about bringing back real effects instead of CGI. And and Mike and Andrew kind of talk about that a bit. Uh, and I really do believe, I mean, even just going to see Mad Max, Fury Road, the, the trailers before the movie exhausted me. It was just nonstop six-frame edits of the most unbelievable CGI, you know, things in San Andreas and things like that. Not unbelievable in terms of the quality. The quality is all real great in that stuff. But it's just, you know, you know that it's not real and you know that it's not scientifically accurate. And Andrew seems very focused on that and being very um, realistic and photographing as much as possible and using CG where it's necessary and, and then treating it photographically. So you're going you're gonna to hear this great conversation about that. And I, I think it uh, kind of puts some of those articles in a, a better focus. You know, th- like I said, there's a lot of visual effects mo- in this in this movie, even though you don't really talk about that too much in the press. Um, and uh, a lot of it was rig removals, wire removals, safety equipment removals. But there's also a ton of um, information to be learned here about reference material. And they did a really cool exposure trick for day for night to uh, get a really neat look out of that. And uh, even on set etiquette, using a drone for mapping getting 3D um, projections and, and, and textures and stuff using a, a, a fixed-wing drone. So I think you're going to really enjoy this part of the interview. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to the second part of the interview with Eric Whip, the colorist on the film. And uh, we'll be back and talk about that soon. So here's Mike Seymour with Andrew Jackson. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. So uh, I really... You know, I often say congratulations on a film to somebody, but this film is remarkable in many respects. Um, it, it has, from my point of view, because I know you, your signature on it, which is uh, a love of trying to get stuff in camera as much as there is a love of being able to do th- stuff digitally. That's true, yeah. It, I've been joking recently, actually, about how um, the film has been um, promoted as um, being a live action stunt driven film and and absolutely it is um and how there's so little um cgi in the film it's called cgi rather than vfx but um the the um, the reality is that there's actually 2000 vfx shots in this film and you know there's a there's a whole range of uh, you know a lot a very large number of those shots are um a very simple little cleanups and fixes and wire removals and painting out tire tracks from previous takes and that sort of thing. But there is a big chunk of big VFX shots as well. 
Yeah. Also, that number is not inflated by sky replacements because we heard from uh, Eric that uh, enormous amount of stuff that I would have thought was VFX work was actually being done in the in the grading suite, which I think is both um, interesting from a sort of evolution of the technology, but also it meant that your work wasn't, you know, entirely just these kind of minor fix-ups. No, exactly. Um, the sky replacements in DI was a, a fantastic. Um, thing that that Eric brought to the film later on as well we didn't really expect to be able to do as much and um and it was very much George's sort of just wanting to um not necessarily tie the shots together from a continuity point of view but more it was just making the more interesting shots where he felt that the sky the shot would benefit from having a more interesting sky and you know Eric would have popped in a few different options virtually as you're talking about it's such a quick um an effective way of doing those sort of little tidy tidying up jobs at the end i think i mean i've I've been thinking that the whole di you know it's so the name of the tool if you like is so wrong nowadays it really is a finishing place it's a place where the film gets gets finished and it's so much more than colour. Yeah, it, it almost feels like what a flame used to be to commercials. Absolutely. Is, it's yeah. exactly the same way, the way that I feel about, like you sit in the suite and you you can, you know, you're, you're racking and adding camera shake and, you know, motion blur and blurring, vignetting, changing skies. There's so much going on in that suite. And the beauty of it is that it's instant. You know, it's not the director giving a note going away, artists working, coming back, showing the result, having another note and going away again. The the difference between that scenario and the director saying, oh, can we change something? And you pull the slider and say, okay, stop, tell, tell us when to stop, and it's yeah. done, is like 100 times more efficient. Some of those skies were yours, right? You, yeah, lots. Yeah, we'd, I've we'd, never seen you on set without at least a camera. No, or I do two. have a large collection of skies. It's one of those things that, translates to virtually every job you know it's really worth keeping a library do you have any kind of asset management on your stuff i mean how do you know to find assets from- i use lightroom just literally lightroom lightroom yeah and you know i've got hundreds hundreds of thousands of images in there and and it, and it copes I, so you, you know, keyword tag them and stuff tag Sorry? them you tag them and keyword yeah them yeah and- I, I actually just recently because i've got so many sky things i i i tend to um i've been adding a a sort of index tag to one key shot from each set of of the same sky so that I can kind of go through quickly and see, okay. I'm and this is like a, the indicative shot. Of, yeah, exactly. And then I can then expand and look at all the rest of them later if you, yeah, if you want to. Yeah, that's right. So let's go back to this idea of the CGI for a second. I think it's a really interesting concept about people that say, I want to do it for real. And mm. I say, okay, so that guy isn't really a nomad with, um, you know, no children and no life and and living in a desert um he's actually an actor so you know that there's a limit to the notion of what's actually real but i think what they mean is they don't want to see so much cgi vehicles and i would say cgi physics probably almost anything else so the impossible stuff that can't be done yeah. is that how you read it i think i think that seems to be the um because uh, we've been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks since the film's come out and there has been a lot of discussion about the, you know, it being a real film and everything's real. But like you said, it's a film. It's fantasy. They're but, actors, um, yeah. I think what people are talking about is 
you know, for a while when when the first sort of amazing CG films came out, like Jurassic Park, and you could suddenly have dinosaurs that you believed were were running around in the world, and and that was an amazing kind of um, new thing that suddenly you could you could have things that did look real in a in a film, and and that's built and built until you got to a point where really you could have anything you want. There are no limits. Everything anything is possible, and. And I think the public may be just a little bit bored with the idea that that there are no limits anymore, and this film is so much more grounded in reality. And as George was saying, you know, there are no people that fly. There's no superheroes. There's no special powers. It's it's the film is is based in real world physics. Okay, so let let's discuss a shot. I think to eliminate that, um, because obviously. What you're saying is true. There's a lot of vehicles running across a lot of desert with a lot of great stunt work, and I take nothing away from any of that. Um, but, you know, there also probably wasn't a twister lifting cars off the deck and throwing people willy-nilly in a giant sort of sandstorm of biblical proportions. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, when everyone says there's no CG, they're all assuming that clearly the audience realised that there are sequences in there that you couldn't possibly... Uh, you don't you don't schedule a film waiting for a, a huge storm. It's not just any storm; it's like the the yeah, mother of all storms. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously, the whole um, toxic storm, which is as it's known in the film, is um, the storm itself is completely CG. The vehicles, in the most part, we film. We I always try and film something. I, I'm a I'm a as you said before. I'm a big fan of of you know, using as much live action elements as possible. And I'll always try and I would even something. go further, Andrew, and say, because I've known you for many years, you're incredibly inventive in those, in that, in that you're not just willing to say, I'd like an element if I can get one. You'll go to great lengths to get one. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I suppose that's partly my background coming from practical effects and building like a practical background. That that That's my first port of call is always, well, you know, what, why are we doing it? Why are we making a CG version of this? If it exists in the real world and it's easy and possible, then that should be the first option. And you only don't do that if it's if there's a good reason for that. So, so when you're sitting in pre-production and you see on the storyboards, because that's how I understand it, how you would have seen it, this idea of the toxic storm, this is clearly a point where you're leaving what you can film and going into this other area. So what is your methodology moving forward? You said you were going to shoot some live action. Oh, for the for the um, for the storm, I um, we we shot vehicles driving around where possible, so that at least the action. I always think that you know vehicles driving and cameras moving is something that um, even if and I've done this on several shots in in other jobs where you where you shoot the layout and you shoot vehicles driving and and the camera move and gradually one thing at a time everything gets replaced except the camera and the positions of where things were so you may end up with with nothing left of what was actually shot but the but the shot still inherits something real from the fact that you did shoot a plate originally and and it's i i still believe it's worth doing for that reason and uh, and that's how we approached the storm we we um we knew roughly where what the layout was and where the major twisters were going to be and we shot vehicles driving around and um and we did a lot of post vis um working out exactly the size and position and scale and the and the movement of the whole scene um yeah so um that um 
and then you know the the it was always obviously the obvious that the actual twisters themselves were going to be completely cg massive fluid simulation um and and tom um wood was actually working on um concept um the look of the of the twisters and and suggested that idea of flames being sort of swept up into the into the swirling dust cloud which was a fantastic idea and that um was really probably right from the start and that was kind of incorporated into the into the cg um but even you know while we were in the midst of doing the the final shots the um you know there was a, a sense of the cg storm feeling a little bit separate and distant from the vehicles and the live action and um and right in in the middle of um post production we set up another little element shoot and and i shot um a whole lot of dust well, actually sawdust um particles blowing past the camera and towards the camera and sand Against pouring blue or something Just, or? no we actually we went to the old um um dr d studios in yeah. carriageworks which we still had at that point and um and i just got a big space and lit and hung blacks behind at the back and so we were shooting into black and, and very bright lights in the foreground so it was um the dust was really brightly lit and the um and the background was so dark i could actually put fans and things in the background and not see them right so we're literally using just absolutely cutting off the background um with with complete darkness and presumably and, defocus as well right yeah and then and so all that sort of swirling uh, very dust particles very close to the camera and little streams of sand blowing off the vehicles and and I we shot for 3 days a, a huge library of of that those sort of elements and they did help <laughs> integrate the idea of the cleaner coming in at the end of the day, you know. Oh, Mr. Jackson, what have you done? Yes, very much so, yeah. Quite a mess. Um, yeah. Here's the thing, though. The guys that are coming off the vehicles, so if you've seen somebody coming off a motorbike, I mean, you had reference, right, of like live action. We had a of, lot of reference, yeah. 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 People come off. See, my problem is, not a problem, my thought is that the reality isn't necessarily what, you necessarily get in a film what you get in the film is the film reality yeah and it seemed to me that you know if someone's thrown off something they basically just form into a star kind mm. of all arms and legs to just shot out in the most uncreative way because it's a sort of centrifugal kind of spin-off yeah but stunt guys don't do that stunt guys are really interesting when they're flying through the air yeah and and that's ba- that's what uh a sort of expectation in the film sort of language is because we all all the people we see flying through the air on films are you know stunt people or and and that's um i think tom's spoken about this already as well on how you know when we tried those first sort of simulations that are real physics they don't look very interesting and you actually end up going back to hand animating more down that more sort of interesting action yeah and so picking up on that point from tom the the thing about it though is that when we say we want it real um this isn't a physics experiment so mm. we don't want it real real we no, want it movie we, real exactly <laughs> and the same would go for um day for night because you know real night is very different from film Not blue night. <laughs> yeah but but yes you're right blue but i mean the thing mm. is that's kind of interesting though isn't it because 
you could do a perfect physics sim and someone can say it looks fake and it's like well it only looks fake because you don't normally see people flying off things in sandstorms and you just imagine it's going to look different than that yeah yeah and that, and that's um that's a big issue with a lot of visual effects isn't it if if it's something that people have never seen before or because we all know that it couldn't possibly be real then you question whether it looks real but um you know a lot of a lot of really good visual effects you don't even know it's like the invisible visual effect yeah i mean i think that also changes in the minds of audience i mean i think if you had um not to trivialize it but like 911 showed how a real skyscraper reacted to a real building being flown into it by terrorists and it was a shocking event but looking at it from a physics point of view it did what it did in real life and it collapsed but what didn't happen is giant plumes of fire there was some of that but there was mainly a dust plume and mm. and now of course an audience would expect to see that because that's gone into our psyche i think before 911 and, and having not seen that in real life anyone had written that um would have assumed it was you know huge explosions and the building going over sideways and it came down on itself in a way that now seems natural but then seemed remarkably gray yeah does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's one it's a thing we deal with all the time in in our industry is um is people's perception of what real is and um and then there's two aspects to that one of them is that you know often people's perception is completely wrong and i'll go to a lot of effort to film or find reference and i'll go out and shoot things really happening and that use that as us to inform how we do the visual effects but then the second really interesting part of that is that's always just a starting point because if you work out what would really happen and you really achieve it but it looks really boring then you don't want that either so you know you've got to you've got to find the compromise between something that looks convincing and real but is actually interesting to look at as well because quite often real life isn't actually that exciting now that that's a common problem with speed as well i'm wondering about that about the vehicles because you know it's it's the case that i've seen vehicles that are traveling at very high speed on film and they just don't look very fast and i was mm. there on the day and they look bloody fast um did you have any of that problem well the i mean the film in general is sped up a huge amount i mean a lot of the shots are um are double speed some of them are way more like four or five times oh, really? faster but but because of the nature of the cut and the way that it's so the cut is so fast, yep. you really just don't get um, enough time to for that to be exposed as you know a really wrong speed up. So um, yeah, I was I was amazed actually. We were we were um, nervous because George has always said, "No, it's fine. We'll speed it up. It'll be no problem." And um, we were nervous that it would it would look a bit hokey but in fact the vast majority of the time you know people just don't see it it just it just makes it more exciting and much faster yeah so talking about my perception of reality and and selling something let's talk about the citadel the the whole idea of this sort of uh giant rock face thing with a garden of eden on top and giant water spouts coming out of it like that's not something you're going to stumble across in in any kind of desert really yeah and that's a classic case of something that you know isn't real and so you question whether it looks real or not so how did you approach making that look real um because well, i thought it, it you know worked well in the film yeah i've always um 
I've got an absolute aversion to people painting rocks. Why is that? You just I don't always, think it looks real? Yeah, I just I always want to use real surfaces and textures and okay. shape as much as we possibly can. Um, the I I suppose I need to start a bit earlier on with the how we approach the citadel because the technique that we used came out of um, some technology that we bought for the f shoot, which was a little air, a little fixed wing drone for um, photographing the ground, like aerial photogrammetry tool. So it wasn't a, a chopper; it was a no. It was a, a little winged, plane. It was like right. a one meter wingspan plane with a with a compact camera, right? And completely flew itself. So you you just map out the area that you're interested in on the ground, you throw it into the air, and it goes up and flies in a little grid, taking photos every um, few meters and then comes back and lands next to where it was launched and but the software that they give you with that plane was um this software called photoscan yep. which is um and and this was i guess we're talking um 4 years ago now where no one had heard of it and um and we started using it to do to build these terrain models textured terrain models and um and then just experimenting with the software found it was quite an incredible piece of software for building anything you anything you wanted if you had photographs of it you could essentially make it with virtually no labor i mean you give the software a folder full of images and it'll give you back a textured 3d model yeah it's a remarkable photogrammetry yeah yeah and so that became um the sort of corner post of a lot of the environmental 3d that we did in the whole film but but where is this citadel of which you okay, photogrammetry so, the, yeah. <laughs> so you know having that as a technique then yep. we were basically looking for where where are the rocks that we're going to use to build this um this structure from and we looked at various ones and uh wadi rum in jordan was one option and um but in the end um the blue mountains was the um just the outside winner. sydney yeah right outside sydney and um um there are cliffs there that are 200 meters tall and sheer and um just amazing place and and i took a um a helicopter up there and we flew backwards and forwards along like the, a real helicopter now. a real helicopter right. um with a with a high-res camera and we took a lot of stills, stills. Yeah. yeah yeah and then that was what your sort of texture it was more than well, textures, was more. Really. it was it was geo and texture geometry and and texture but yeah. actually um after doing quite a lot of this sort of work we realized that um the the way that we needed to capture that was in overcast conditions so it's lit and it's got um real lighting but because it was overcast you can add more key lights to right it. so and we waited we had the chopper standing by for i think it was 10 days waiting for the right conditions because we needed it to be isn't that funny it's normally like you want good sun yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we and didn't good... have one cloudy day for, <laughs> for like maybe a week and a half but um the day we went it was perfect it was a sort of overcast morning and the, just at the end of the time we were shooting the sun was starting to peek through but it was it was great it worked really well yeah and, and um the people at Allura did all of that um, citadel work, and I'm making it sound probably easier than it really was. It was a, it was a lot of work taking that raw 
material and then chopping it up and bending it around and rebuilding it essentially into the shapes that we wanted. Just talk about that for a second. So Allura was the primary visual effects house, though I think they, while they did the majority of work, there was some done under a, you, you had your own team? At- yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think um, Allura did uh, 1,500 shots and um, the um, Fury effects that we, we called the in-house team um, did another four or five hundred how'd you break that mix up was it just on a scene basis or was it a type of work um various ways i should talk a little bit about the whole post um experience because it was fantastic i have to say that the um i mean i've been a big advocate for for many years of um having a small team of people work out what the visual effects what the the main visual effects requirements are because i, I see that as one of the biggest issues in our industry is that people um, spend a lot of effort um, going down the wrong road only to present it and, and have it modified and have to do it all over again. So I've always, um, and I know it's not a new thing and a lot of people are doing the same thing, but I, I will fight really hard to have that um, small group of people who um, completely devoted to um, helping editorial work out exactly what the film is and do whatever my brief when we um when we went into this film i said i want to have a i want to set aside you know funds to pay for a group of people to do postfers and the brief to them is that they should do whatever it takes to make um to to help editorial and every shot should have all the major components represented in some way so that you can you could sit down and watch the film and and it makes sense and um, and that was just incredibly successful. Um, that's interesting because from a business point of view, also that's so that's the productions team. Hmm. So effectively, while you obviously have a budget, that's like a like a labor and materials thing, right? Like this isn't a separate company. This is just like a cost, like art department. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Part so, so by the time you uh, you've solved the problem for editorial, you've solved the problem creatively, as it were, for for the director but you've also presumably have an idea how the shot should be done by the time you're handing it over to the vfx house so you're not just saying to them i want something i've never seen before you're saying i want this and this is an approach i think you should go down exactly i mean there's so many benefits from it you as as well as the director having complete creative freedom initially when they're cutting the film there's, there's no constraints about you know who's agreed to what and you know that wasn't what you asked for before it's like complete freedom just do, what, people, yeah. do whatever you need to make the film work yeah and then at the end of that process you've got a much tighter edit because it really has got the things in it yeah um you've got a document that you can um send out to the vendors to bid and they can bid it accurately instead of having to allow for whatever might happen you can say no bid exactly this this is and you know this is what we want this is exactly what we want we we worked on eight frame handles but we said if there's if there's expensive work to be done in those handles cut them down to two and so deliver eight but only do you know expensive um laborious work on two frames if you have to and so we've got a re- which which when you're talking about shots that are between one and half a second long you don't want to be wasting you're doubling the it's shot. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, if you've got, as I hadn't thought of that, if, statistically speaking, yeah. eight-frame handles suddenly become a much higher percentage of the film if you've got yeah. 2,000 yeah. one-second shots. Yeah, and um, and the other thing that came out of the post 
process was that when your shots are half a second to one second long, the post fizz was virtually good enough. And the massive difference in the requirements in a shot when it's that short, you can really get away with yeah. really very rudimentary elements. And um, and what we found quite a lot was that the post fizz as it stood was almost good enough. We just really had to swap out um, the elements for DPX and render it again and that was it done. So the the post-fizz team sort of um, switched over to finaling simple shots. But they, we also, um, with the, with the post-fizz people, took on some of the major um, canyon shots as well. Yeah, this is an important point, isn't it? Because while the vehicles were real and the actors uh, were there, obviously, but so were the stunt people, while that is what was core, you in fact enhanced quite dramatically the canyons around them or the, the rocks around them or whatever. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the um, we went to an amazing location in Namibia where we shot everything, but um, not a lot of the locations were left exactly as they were. We, the the canyon where we shot that part of the film, um, got extended quite significantly. It was made a lot taller and narrower in places, and uh, you know there was one major part of the film where there's a narrow little neck that gets blocked with a. Um, rock explosion um well that didn't really exist there was a narrow piece there but you know it didn't have the the rocks over the top and so a lot of that whole sequence was um um augmented i think one of the most remarkable things about george miller as a director especially in this um mad max genre is so we're talking about very short scenes we're talking about a lot of action in some cases as you say it's sped up immensely and and so it's really quick they're very graphic and punchy um and yet somehow or other he manages through you and the team to not disorientate me and i think that's a tremendous uh, directorial skill because it would be very easy for it just to be a clutter just be like i tell me when the sequence is over because i've kind of lost track of who's doing what and which way anyone's going and and i don't know which way is up so whenever Tom Hardy gets out of it, I'll pay attention again to the story. And I never had that. Somebody said it was like being hit in the face constantly for two hours and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's huge credit to George and he pays an enormous amount of um, attention to the audience's point of view across a cut. And it's a, a thing that he, he calls eye scan where very, very aware of exactly which part of the frame the audience's eyes are focused on at the last frame of one shot and the first frame of the next shot he'll make sure that the relevant piece of the of the frame that you should be looking at is in the same place so that you don't use that first three or four frames to find where you're supposed to be looking in the frame your eyes are already in the right spot which really underlines why your post-fizz was so important because if he changed the edit clearly it's more than just swapping shot A for shot C because mm. if C didn't have my eye in the right place leading yeah. into B, I'm, I'm, I have to just reframe the whole shot. Absolutely. And we did a lot of, um, you know, blowing up and racking and and repositioning things within the frame to make that work. And I think it's absolute testament to to that technique that that those very, very fast action sequences are so easy to watch and, and you don't get lost and you, know, you do have a sense of, Wow, that was crazy, but but I knew what was going on. So. We, we've discussed Eric, the colorist, and uh, the Lura team. We haven't really discussed John Seal and the DOP and the camera department, but I've heard 
John talk, and he's incredibly uh, complimentary of you and the rest of the team. It did seem like it was a very, very collaborative effort. Another, no more so than this day for night sequence. Can we discuss that for a second? Because you had the audacity or the nerve or just the balls to suggest the most extraordinary things. When I heard about it, I thought you were like Stark Raving Max. I know you and I trust you, but you wanted to shoot all the day for night overexposed. Can you walk through that? Yeah, I mean... I, I have to admit that the um, the reason well, part of the reason why um, I had that idea was that I shoot a lot of um, HDR um, mirror balls and reference on yep. set, and and the camera I use has a um, nine stop automatic um, bracketing setting, so you just set it and hold the button down, and it shoots from four stops. Okay, just just keep me for a second. So you so, do you shoot mirror balls or do you shoot you know, eight mil sort of. I, I always shoot mirror balls um, because I find it's faster for me. I use a Nikon. I've used a Nikon. Um, now I've got D eight hundred, but um, before that, various other Nikon's. But they do that nine stop bracketing. automatic bracketing thing, which I love because you can just plonk it down. You can you can run in really fast with a mirror ball on a tripod and the camera. Mirror ball and a grey ball or just a mirror ball? Sorry? Mirror ball and a grey ball um, or just I, a mirror ball? I will shoot grey balls, but not necessarily for every single. And what about I Macbeth mean, charts? Um, we do some, yes, as well. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends how much. Is it like actually, a sliding scale? Like if I've got no time, I'll do the mirror ball, and if I've got all the time in the world, I'll do a grey ball and a Macbeth chart? Yeah, well, it's more, it's more to do with what, what I'm going to put in there. I okay. mean, if, it, if it's really just reference and you know there's not going to be a whole lot of CG objects going to be added to that scene that have to match exactly, if it's just literally reference for roughly what the lighting conditions were, then I'll probably not go to so much trouble. Okay. Um, but I like, you know, I've got the mirror ball on one tripod and the camera on another. You can yep. run in, plonk them down, hit the button, it just goes click, 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 and yep. it's done, run away. Because, yep. you know, that time that you spend... Any time that you spend on set that's extending the shoot is... Um, expensive. Very expensive. And um, and I'm always very, very aware of that. And, and a tad unpopular with the yeah, first exactly. day. I mean, to me, you know, when you're, you're on a shoot like that, um, one of the biggest things that I can contribute to the shoot is is to make it more efficient. And, you know, I, I don't want to be adding five minutes to every setup. Okay, so but so that, you've done that. Yeah, we've sort of gone off the track. But the the uh, how that relates to day for night. Occasionally, after shooting a, a mirror ball, I would forget to turn the bracketing off, and I'll I'll have a a series of images that are anything from four stops over to four stops under. And sometimes I really need those images, and I've and I've often had to grade them. I'm always shooting raw, fourteen bit raws and Nikon, and and I can grade those two, three, four stop over images. And they look amazing as long as they're not clipped. As long as you haven't lost the highlights, the resulting image is—they're uh, the best images you get. And okay, so let me just so clarify really, that. So, no, to be really technical, because I mean, I'm, I'm I'm exquisitely interested in this. They they're they're excellent in the sense that you can get them back to normal, or they're kind of better than normal when you get them back when you regrade them. Are they different from if you just got the exposure right? And, I mean, it's a classic digital still photography technique of exposing to the right. The more the higher the exposure the better the image is assuming it hasn't clipped so if if it's not clipping then an overexposed image will always be better than a 
than a normally exposed. Right, but image. I'm saying you're. I'm saying I'm asking you how how do you define better? Is it just to your eye? You're getting different things. Or it's is more, it different detail de- and more detail. More okay. detail. There's less noise, and yep. um, yeah, it's just a it's a it's a more detailed image. There are more. So it's visually levels. to you more satisfying. Yeah. If like if you could take the shot that's overexposed and bring it down, you'd prefer that shot side by side with if you just use the automatic exposure and got the right exposure. Yes, with the with the um, proviso that but it the, doesn't clip. the clipping is not yeah. an issue. Which but, which then begs the question: You're shooting on an Alexa for this film, right? Yeah. So how does a 14-bit RAW Nikon file compare to an ARRI RAW file? I think it's very similar. Okay. I think you know shooting with the ARRI, it felt very much like filming with a a very good digital still camera you know like the stills from a digital still yeah camera. not the 8-bit video. not the uh, video yeah right yeah. and so and so really that, i mean that the whole day for night thing you could have applied to the whole film and say shoot the whole thing overexposed or rate the camera higher which is what in the end they they kind of did after that experience i think they did push the camera a little bit more in that direction because you know assuming that you're not um clipping skies or highlights then the images are nicer and cleaner if they're slightly overexposed and that's really the only the the thing with i did do some tests with the day for night idea with digital stills and the massive benefit you get from um shooting overexposed on for a day for night setup is that you get detail in the shadows that's still there even you can pull the highlights down and and darken the whole image but still have detail in the shadows so it doesn't just clip to black in the in the shadows yeah so let's think about that for a second so what you're saying is in fact it's not just that i'm using the uh, overexposure to then get this great neg as it were and then slide the whole thing back down you're actually keeping your blacks at the level of the overexposure and bringing the top end down. So it's in fact a compressed, mm. almost uh, almost a tone-mapped kind of solution. And then you're taking all of that dark, so the contrast ratio between the light and the dark in the, in the night stuff isn't as broad as it would have been had you not done that. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Because if you just slide the whole thing down, yeah, it's not sliding the whole thing. You just crush it's, your blacks. It's, it's bringing the tops down, keeping the blacks where they are. Because um, you know, the traditionally and the and the inclination usually is to underexpose day for night. But th- that, of course, will just lose all of your sh- shadow detail, and that'll clip to black. So yeah, this was a way of keeping. In fact, if you if you shoot underexposed and you still want to bring it down, you're now having a night shot with less latitude because the floor of the blacks having already clipped stays where it is and everything else just gets pushed down on top of it. Yeah, and also um, you've got, if you do want to try and lift any detail back out of the shadows, it's all just noise. Noise, yeah. So so in effect, the look that we are seeing in Mad Max of night is actually a lower dynamic range, as it were, or less contrasty range in the darker area with a kind of a blue tint. Hmm. Um, and but I have actually got I've got more information than I would otherwise have, but yeah. I just don't have a lot of contrast in the sense that the the black is where it is and the light is where it is, and that's not as wide as it could have been if you'd if you'd left it uncorrect. Well, that's really interesting because I, hmm. I I mean when you say it, it kind of makes sense, but God, it didn't make sense when I first heard about it. In fact, hmm. I know I'm not the only one, right? A lot of people were kind of yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think it is just that it is really just that classic. Um, digital still photography technique that that's called exposing to the right referring to the histogram obviously yeah. where you know you get all of your 
your image information on the right hand side of the histogram which is where you get so much more detail oh no no absolutely it's just that mm. maybe i'm just misinformed and maybe i'm just ignorant but it was for me the the shooting to the right thing has always been more about noise and getting you know good exposure but not a compressed exposure, if that makes sense. Like this right. idea that you would leave the blacks for there and just bring the highlights down mm. means that I've still got detail on the blacks and detail that wasn't obviously clipped in the whites is still kind of there, although it isn't on screen bright, bright. Um, mm. and, and yet you didn't do this in pre-pro, did you? You worked it out on set. Yeah. So there must have been a day that you walked into the DOP's tent and said – can I ask you about something? Oh, well, no, they were um, – I, talk, I talked to John about it and they set up a um, test where they were just a little scene, broad daylight, middle of the day, full yeah. sun, and they were shooting with the Arri various exposures. And, um, and I sort of came along to that and I said, um, "Do so you're doing the overexposed thing, right? And they said, oh, don't be silly. And, you know, I said, well, you know, do – I think they were like half a stop or some, some sort of thing. But you were recommending well, two stops, weren't you? I, well, I was, I was proposing four stops, you know, <laughs> to do a test at least sure. with, um, you know, one, two, three, and four stops over and to work out which was best. And, and I had to really um, work hard to convince them to go – to do the test even at four, uh, two stops. And they just thought it was ridiculous. And um, – but then, you know, we did test with the result in um, in Spockermon where we were so still, we were set up. Uh, still and, on location, you were doing Yeah, on tests. location. Yeah. And sure enough, the overexposed ones looked amazing. And so it was, it was, it was sold right there. I mean, they were the ones that... When you say you don't want any clip, I mean, you're talking about cars in sunlight. And so cars just ping and pings clip. I mean, highlights are always going to clip. Yeah, so you so mean just like... kind of okay, really. And then if... But then you also said skies. But it, in some cases, well, we know in, in post you were doing a lot of sky replacements. Yeah. But in some cases there must have been skies that were either clipping or just weren't very much there no matter what you did because they were kind of just white. I think you'd, you'd have to say that the, you know, the technique worked because the Aries, totally worked. the Aries range is so amazing, especially at the highlight. And, you know, it rolls off nicely. It's got, a, it's got a, an amazing um, dynamic range and – especially at the top end. so That roll-off, do you want to talk about that? Because that's really key to this, isn't it? Not having an electronic clip, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the way that the ARRI um, rolls off into a into a clipped highlight, essentially, because there will always be clips, you know, if there, if there's a, a highlight, um, the sun reflecting on a shiny metal yeah. object is obviously going to clip, and the way that it rolls off into that that highlight is, is key. And, that, and with the ARRI... You know, it does that in a really nice way, and and that can be graded, and it and it still looks good. So. Must have also helped with actors' faces because you know one of the things that that Eric talked about in the grade is that for, for obvious reasons, George wanted to be able to see the actors' faces, and you know you can lose faces into shadows pretty quickly, and trying mm-hmm. to lift those up, and that's exactly where where somebody's looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it just goes across all the whole film that the you know the quality of the image is so good that um, it helps everywhere, but, yeah, partic- particularly the skin tones. And especially with the um, the grade that we that George wanted on this film was so extreme, the oversaturated, high contrast. It wasn't always going to be like that, was it? Um, no, although that sort of, that look did emerge quite early on when, um, you know, when jo- George start- first started looking at the at the film. He didn't want another... 
kind of um, desaturated, high contrast, post-apocalyptic look. So he was looking for something that would stand out, and he certainly got that. I think in the um, the the end result is very strong. Um, over that saturated, oversaturated look in the stark desert and sky. Looking forward, like, is there any lessons that you learn off this film? I mean, it sounds like the post viz was a winner, but was there anything else you'd do differently or lessons you'd carry forward? Uh, I think probably one of the big lessons I've taken from this film is um, to not worry too much on set, you know, because, and, and, to be honest, I thought I was quite good at that before, but um, <laughs> but um, working with George, you know, because he had he was the only one really who who knew while we were shooting how he was going to put this film together and how fast it was going to be, how fast the action was, and um, you know we were shooting with um, with often four cameras around a setup, and you know if it was a static setup that that was on vehicles that were supposed to be moving the inclination is to put a try and get a green screen behind people who are running around on top of vehicles but they were never big enough and they didn't cover because it was going up so high they were, yeah. had to be absolutely massive i mean i basically look i was looking for um things that couldn't be keyed off the sky or rotoed basically anything that was going to be absolutely impossible to do but what i was saying before that you know when you've got four cameras you start at the beginning of the shoot, you would start with the the key, the main camera. Yep. You'd try and get a green behind that. And then they'd bring in another camera. And the first green that you'd put in was completely messing up the view in the second one and the third and the fourth. And it just got worse. And you end up, I ended up looking at the end of, while we're actually taking, doing the takes and wishing that I hadn't bothered putting any of them in because none of them were good green and they were messing up other shots. And you never knew which shot was going to be the hero one. And there was only going to be one little tiny snippet of one of those four cameras, which is not a very, there's not very much roto to do compared to the amount of work of get, trying to get four green screens all working around a, a very s small set. So as time went on, I, I sort of, I stopped worrying really much at all about trying to get good greens behind um, foreground objects. And I was literally just looking for, things that were going to be a major problem like hair crossing a, a, a wind machine or right. you know, something that that just couldn't be dealt with you um yeah i mean obviously on a film of this budget you you know that you're going to have some resources to throw at a problem which is you know always a good thing um but nevertheless uh there is a sense that you're going to be carrying the bag at the end of the day i mean like it's going to end up in your team's i don't know Normally, it's in your team's department to sort of solve anything that couldn't be solved on set. Yeah, it's true. And I guess like every project, you're constantly assessing the situation on the ground during the shoot and um, and trying to work out what's the best way of dealing with the the current scenario. You know, whatever, like you, whatever... Um, um, plans you have going into the shoot, they're often... Um, not the way that it turns out and so you're constantly modifying that and I, and I could elaborate a little bit on this because you sure. know on a normal shoot you you're shooting a foreground element you know there's going to need to be a background element so you 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 write a list of all the background elements you need to pick up to go with the foregrounds on this shoot we were shooting at something like over 400 to 1 shooting ratio 
Well, that's a lot of foreground plates. <laughs> you can't possibly cover every single angle of every shot in the film. And, and clearly, most of them, the vast majority of them, are not going to get used. So, so it would be ludicrous to try that normal approach of covering every foreground with an appropriate background element. So I, I completely gave up on that very early on and said, well, the, the only thing I can do here is, is, um, is collect a library of material to, that will accommodate whatever the edit ends up being. And so we went and, and drove around shooting moving backgrounds from various heights and angles of the locations that we were shooting in and a lot of still, high-res stills so that we could rebuild elements. The, so the 400 to 1 isn't... The 400 to 1 was, I imagine, partly because you sometimes had a whole setup and you're only lifting 23 frames out, right? So that's what causes that ratio to be so high, not that you just shot tons of scenes that never made it in the movie. Yeah, that's right. It's it's the um, you know the duration of the shots and the fact that there were multiple cameras on each shot. Yeah, and and also I have to um, take some responsibility for that shooting ratio because I shot a lot of background material. <laughs> and that's all included in that four hundred and eighty hours. <laughs> Was there anything about the stills that you shot that I mean? It seemed like you're sometimes just using stills as stills and just moving them around to match, as opposed to having to use the stills to reconstruct and reproject and because the shots were so short and yeah we did both i mean there's a lot of you know if you if you're looking out of the side window of a vehicle that's traveling through a, a rocky canyon a still sliding past is absolutely all you need but if you're looking forwards um then you completely need to build 3d geometry to right. drive past it so we we used the same stills to do both jobs so we were either building um 3D geometry, or just using them as, or in fact, we had driving footage as well, so we could um, that shot on the Arri. So I know that you obviously had to remove rigs, and and safety is a primary concern of the filmmaker and the film production to not so obviously putting rig removals off. But in the same boat, did you have to do a lot of actually compositing together live cars? In other words, I got a truck and sixteen cars swerving, and so there was actually um, in the first take there was a car and a truck and then the second one there was another three and then another three and another three? A lot, a lot right. of that. A huge amount of the film, of the visual effects in the film is pure 2D um, compositing various elements and they might be that we were adding a bit of extra flame or they might have been that this car was actually too close in this shot so we've sort of shrunk it down, pushed it further away and patched up the ground or we've added some more vehicles in the background that were, you know, that that particular shot just didn't have the right vehicles in the right place. There was a lot of that sort of thing. Um, huge, yeah. huge. Because that gets back, I think, I, I just I just can't tell you how much I admire the fact that I never lost my uh, myself in the film in terms of going, I've got no idea what's going on. Like for that much live action, for what is essentially, a, you know, let's face it, pretty much a couple of hours of chase, I, I just knew where everyone was. I sort of didn't go, I'm, who's hurt? What, what's, Wern? Huh? Mm. And, and it was incredibly complicated film to shoot as well because in a lot of that chase especially towards the end there was various events happening in different on different vehicles in different places and whenever like there was a fight going on on top of the war rig tanker for example there was something else going on you know on the right and so we had to try and make sure that the the the, the events that were happening around that were also correct while we were shooting that that live action, the foreground element, but um, 
and and to be honest, a lot of that did come back to visual effects in the end to to fix up the continuity elements in the background. I guess the only other visual effects shot I haven't mentioned, and I, I should have probably discussed this much earlier, but clearly one of the things you had to do was solve the fact that your lead actress only had one arm in the film. Yeah, yeah, that was a little bit of visual effects involved there. Although actually remarkably straightforward. The, what she wore was um, like a, a glove that was the mechanical hand mm. and the the wrist and the elbow were real and the and the parts that connect the two the wrist and the elbow were all present except for the central shaft so that she wore a green glove a sleeve um, which we painted out and then added this one central piece and any of the background parts that had been obscured by her arm so a lot of the time it was um you know could be done as a 2d um, track just tracking this a little object in there because they're very quick shots and but, but what about the fight when she has no um yeah that was attached? um she wore a green glove and we you know tracked on a, a 3d stump to the end of her is know. that is that difficult i mean i one uses one's arm just for balance and so it'd be hard to say leave your hand behind your back um or, or away from your body it must have crossed and done yeah all sorts of things. yeah well, there was paint out and um and you know we tried to encourage her to not use her hand to well, to yeah. get up and you know like to lift herself off the ground and in the most part she didn't but although again you know i know the shots where she did and it doesn't really show up that much it's um it's pretty good it's um i think again just you know in the the sort of fast cutting of that fight scene you get away with it cuz I, I thought that all worked really well I yeah. mean, it just you know yeah. You, yeah. you, you as an audience need to see that at some point. You'll buy it for most of the film if I, you know, and also it was a plot point near the end, so. Yeah, yeah. There'd probably be a fair bit more um, CG in the film if it wasn't for me because I'm, I spend quite a lot of time talking people into how they might be able to shoot something that would otherwise have been a CG event. Um, the the um, One of the... One of the key point um, shots where that's relevant is the rocks being dropped to block the yep. needle in the canyon. Um, that was that was always going to be a CG event, and and we were looking for ways, places where we might be able to shoot some small, like large rock elements, but really a miniature, like a large miniature. Yeah. And looking around for where that might happen, um, there was an old quarry in in the area that where we were working, and I asked if it might be possible to actually blow up a bit of the quarry. <laughs> and um, the we so we asked the owner and, and he said, yeah, sure. So we um, we staked out the bit we wanted to blow up and we put cameras on the ground and we matched all the cameras. We'd already shot the angles where we had to put, where the rocks had to go and, and we blew it up. And so that whole section is very much live action, even though it wasn't in the same environment. And, and in the same token, right, you tricked me because I was convinced that the guitar that kind of bungees towards camera at the rock collapse at the end was CG because that had all the hallmarks of a beautifully choreographed piece of action that you'd never get for real. But you even did that. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a pretty cheesy idea and I thought it would be even worse if it was CG. So I thought the best we can do is at least shoot the real guitar with all the you know, all the wires and because it was a flamethrower as well as a yeah. guitar and it had like um, fuel lines that were broken and leaking fuel and 
and various bits of wire dangling off. And I just imagine that all of that for real coming right up to the camera and bouncing back. So we set up a little um, shoot for that where we hung the guitar from bungees on a cherry picker. And, and I suggested that if you, if you pull the guitar back and release it in exactly the same way, it will always go to the same spot. So we, we did that and we released it and, and marked where the, where it was going to, and then put a camera exactly there. So we could, um, we could repeat that event and get, move the camera slightly closer. So I have a confession to make, Andrew. I hope you don't hate me and ruin our friendship but i actually turned to the guy next to me in the cinema and said well that was cg right <laughs> when that uh kind of sprung towards camera because it just seemed such a wonderfully perfect kind of thing and i thought well there's no way that it got that but yeah. i apologize yeah. and even the um the steering wheel after the guitar yeah um we shot that um just on a little gimbal spinning but um in the end, because George wanted to push right into the mouth, the, the resolution wasn't enough for that. So, so we tracked the action of the spinning one on the gimbal, and then I I built a little rig to photograph that with a high res still camera. So we we matched the motion of the spinning one, and then did a really high res version of that with like stills. stop motion. Yeah, stop motion, absolutely. So that like pushing right into the mouth of the steering wheel was all. Um, a live action element. As my kids would say, hashtag respect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to come in and sit down and talk to us about it, Andrew. Mm. Congratulations. It's just mm. a cracker of a, of a film. I mean, really, really good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's certainly been very well received. Um, oh, yeah, hugely yeah, well received. Yeah. And by a crowd that would have been willing to rip you to shreds had they not liked it. <laughs> mm. yeah. It was quite a devout uh, following. I went to see the premiere in Sydney and there were a lot of people and a lot of them were of an age that clearly they this was, you know, not the first Mad Max film they'd seen. This wasn't a bunch of 12-year-olds. This was a bunch of people that were dedicated and invested in the franchise. Yes. Yeah. And they loved it. Yeah, they seem to, it seems to have gone down well with the... Um with the broad range of, you know, the, the audience. Again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so second up in the interview here is Eric Whip, who is the colorist on the film. And if you've seen the film, even if you've just seen the trailers, I think you're going to really enjoy this discussion because there's also, the, uh, uh, as was mentioned by Andrea in, in the interview earlier, the, the changing role of the colorist, the fact that so many of the sky replacements were done in the coloring of the film and in the, in the, in the DI session as opposed to in visual effects. And, you know, even the amount of work that was done on faces and eyes that you'll hear Eric talk about. So let's join now Mike Seymour, continuing the conversation about Mad Max Fury Road with Eric Whip. So congratulations on the film. It's a cracker of a, uh, a film. I mean, obviously I've seen the first three, but this one um, is really edge-of-your-seat stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a fun ride. Yeah, ride being the operative word in this case. Um, so the <laughs> thing that I was overwhelmed with, and uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person to comment on this, is that you've gone for such a rich, saturated, uh, red kind of world in a typically post-apocalyptic uh, sort of bluey-green, um, so that would what normal people would uh, kind of typically go for. Was that saturated, very red kind of look always where you wanted to go with it? Was that there from the outset? Uh, you know, it's quite funny. Is it, A lot of this came uh, from... Uh, George's vision because you know he's like you know he's essentially like one of the fathers of post-apocalyptic films and he's been watching other post-apocalyptic films hit the screens for the last 30 years and realize that they all do the same thing they're all the same bleach look 
And uh, so this time around, uh, that was sort of the one direction he gave me was to be, he was very adamant about, I want a saturated film. I want it to be graphic and saturated. And we, I just wanted to make another, yet another, you know, desaturated film. Yeah. And so that's what we did. He's, um, <laughs> uh, and we, you know, we really approached it, uh, with, you know, it's this sort of, you know, we had two words in the back of our head the whole time, which was like, you know, graphic novel. And we just kept saying that to ourselves, just make it, just think graphic novel, you know, whenever we could, we changed the sky or we did something just to try and make it as graphic as we could. Um, just to avoid that, uh, bleached kind of feel. And it's quite funny. We did start with that and we experimented with it and we tried it, but, Ultimately, one of the other issues we have is that this film, you know, is essentially one big long road movie, and there's only two colors in the film. It's basically a sandy beige color and some sky, and if you went a bleached look, it would get very boring to watch very quickly. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we could break up the scenes and have some variety of color and, and, and try and make it more interesting to watch. Right. I mean, it is really uh, phenomenal. Now, I, I want to get into some stuff, but before I get into it, I just want to <laughs> clarify where we're both coming from, right? So John Seal is the DOP on this and a magnificent DOP and just, you know, tremendous track record. And I'm setting this up because I'm about to ask you about the fact that there was a wide variety of graded material that you had to kind of pull into uh, into the one position. I mean, maybe you just want to talk about that relationship with John, because I mean, I've heard John talk about the film and he really shot and gave you a huge latitude of kind of stuff to pull together. Yeah. And, you know, I think John's one of the first people to, to say, you know, when he went into it, he, he quickly realized that he knew that the look was going to be pushed and we were going to be doing a lot of grading. And, um, you know, and I think his mantra on set was just shoot it. Just don't worry too much about the light, just shoot it. And, and to a degree that's, kind of what happens and you know the film shot over such a long period of time over six months in the desert you're never going to get matching light and matching days and uh it's going to be all over the place and the film is cut incredibly quickly like in fact the spool's broken up and when we work on the film we still work in in reels right so we break we break the film up into reels because we still do a film out for this film and you know there's things we have to technical reasons and you know one of the reels of the film we were we were joking well, not really joking, we were just laughing at the fact that one of the reels of Fury Road has more shots in it than the entire Happy Feet movie. So, <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of shots. And, um, but, you know, I mean, that's, it's kind of part of the puzzle. You know, we have to, we, we take all the stuff and we put it together and we try and make it match. And for the most part, it, it flows pretty well. And where they could on set, I think, you know, John would always try and, uh, angle cars where he could. You just keep moving and following the sun so that it's roughly on the same side of the car and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but occasionally you get, you know, bad weather or, yeah, and I, what I wasn't on set, but I hear that one of the problems they have in Namibia is this sort of weird foggy kind of atmosphere rolls in in the morning, uh, off the ocean. And so you just get these white, almost foggy days. And then by the afternoon, it all clears up, and then you've got, you know, rich blue skies. And um, so it's very hard to make those two match. So that's where, you know, the sky replacements came in really handy, just to try and, um, you know, get some color back in there instead of a white sky. Plus, you know, going back to that voice in the back of my head was like, make it, make it graphic, make it graphic. <laughs> and so let's put a graphic sky in instead. 
Yeah, I'll come back to talking about the Sky Replacement. So let me just pick up on that point about uh, Happy Feet for a second because, of course, you worked on the 2007 Happy Feet with George Miller. Just leaving aside the content, which is obviously vastly different, um, was the process of working with the director the same or was uh, uh, you know, like, was this a very different film in terms of how you were working? Yeah, it is. You know, it is very much the same. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I came on board um, on Happy Feet uh, once, uh, I'm trying to think of the words, once uh, uh, some of the compositing had already been done and people had been working on this and attached to it and no one really 100% knew at that point whether they needed a colorist or not. And, you know, I looked at the footage when I first saw some of the scenes and it was like, oh, it's actually really nice. And uh, But then when you start studying it and you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't quite match and this character's gone a bit weird and this isn't... And you realize there's some work to do. And... Um, and you know it's quite funny in a room full of um uh you know lighting artists and compositors i just sort of jump on the grading system and as soon as i turn the dial and to put a bit of contrast in or something i can almost hear the whole room sort of go (laughs) (laughs) and it was a very tense moment because no one's used to like just changing the images they've been working so delicately for so long uh but Part of that process, which is really good for George, and I think was quite liberating, is you know it takes so long to make an animated film, uh, and uh, you know eventually I think you sort of get to the point where you go, oh okay, I think that's good, and then to sit in a room where you can just change it in five minutes and really um, get your hands into it, I I think he uh, really liked that. So we kind of threw out any rule book of how you're supposed to do an animated film and just treated the images that we had from compositing as if they were live action images. So let's just grade them. And it's kind of the same with Fury Road. We just, we'll just grade it and we'll just do what we want. Now I've heard John talk twice about the film and in both occasions, he being quite self-deprecating was just vastly harsher on himself than you just were because he was like, you know, I just gave up on trying to match day for night and time for day and all that kind of stuff and I just ended up and then he himself gave you enormous compliments in just like how stunningly well the images were looking and I mean he's he's not coming at this from an old school DOP of like you know don't mess with my images he was coming at it from this is the future of filmmaking but there was a vast difference between what he was giving you and what you were uh, ending up with George and he seemed to be very encouraging on that uh, on that basis. Yeah, and I think you know we we've spoken a bit about that, and I yeah you know I think it's uh, I don't even know how to put this in words, but I I think the role of a colorist has changed a lot over the last even just the last ten years, you know, and like as as digital intermediate work started coming in, and you know the typically you know, a film lab colorist is not going to do the kind of detailed work that we're doing. And so color grading has sort of almost become this hybrid of visual effects and and film timing. And, um, and I really see, especially on a movie like this, which is also visual effects heavy, I think you're, you're seeing, you know, three uh, parties that play the role in the image. And, you know, you've got what you do on set and the way John Seal shot everything. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, it's a dream to work on this film with such beautiful images. Like, the images, they're not necessarily the way they look in the final film, but what John is shooting is beautiful. And there's so much range in the digital neg, and it's it's great to work with. 
And then you've got visual effects who are doing enhancing, and then you've got the color on top, and we're all collaborating and we're all making that image. And, um, you know, I think for, especially for a movie like this, we have to stop thinking of, you know, you can't just try to capture everything on set and that's it. And, and, and then pass it on to visual effects just to add an element or anything. It's everybody's working together to come up with this image. Yeah, so obviously John can shoot spectacular images and uh, I mean if you go back to the English Patient or um, stuff he did for, I don't know, um, everything from uh, Cold Mountain to, you know, whatever, he's clearly totally able to film in that environment and produce good images. But as I say, he was uh, incredibly um, supportive, I guess, of the role of collaborating with you on this stuff. So can I now swing into your background? Because before you get into this sky replacement, I just want everyone to understand how an accomplished photographer you are in your own right. In fact, you've like won, I know, I think it was like a couple of years ago, you got uh, an international, uh, was it the, um, uh, the work you did on Small Ray Big Canyon, right? I mean, just right. spectacular work in photography. So you've, you yourself have done an enormous amount of just breathtaking exterior photography work. Yeah, and you know, in amongst it's quite it's quite funny. In amongst all my photography work, I found myself uh, boringly taking photos of skies so I could use them in post production. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've always. You know, I, I'm kind of a, the, the strange colorist that didn't really, sort of fell into color grading, and I kind of didn't know where I wanted to be when I was a kid and what I, what I wanted to do. But I always had an interest in images, and I couldn't decide whether I wanted to go down the cinematography path or the post-production path. And then I discovered this at the time, this world called Telecine, and I was like, oh wow, it's kind of like post-production and cinematography at the same time. So that's where I ended up. Um, but you know that's what you know that's what I enjoy doing. So, and I don't know. I don't know how else to answer that. Well, no, no. Because the reason I wanted to flag that is that, um, that when we come to this sky replacement stuff, if I'm not mistaken, a, a bunch of skies that were replaced were from your photography. Uh, yeah, a lot of them were, and um, and a lot were uh, also from uh, Andrew Jackson, who's the visual effects supervisor, um, uh, was on set you know, with his uh, stills camera and just snapping off photographs of landscapes and skies wherever he could because he didn't never knew what he would need anything for. So I, know, I used to work with had... Andrew and Andrew's a great guy and uh, and really, really talented. He's very hands-on. Um, but even uh, if you allow for, for the terrific contribution that Andrew made, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure that you were sticking in skies there from stuff you'd shot in Europe and all over the place, not just sky replacements from that location at different times of day. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of there's all kinds of random uh, places of the world that have thrown into the film, and I, I I sort of it's like a little suitcase I carry with me of skies that I've taken from all over the place, and um, you know you never know what's going to work and what what you need, and um, and in fact one of the 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 trickiest parts on this film was. Uh, for one of the day for night sections, we did a lot of sky replacements, but we really wanted quite stormy skies with little breaks in the cloud, and but it's actually not that easy to find. So um, even here in Toronto, whenever there was a, a slightly stormy day, I'd run out to the lakeshore and take some more photos just because I was hoping one of these guys would work. So so let me just uh, start to talking to you about that, because in the old days, sky replacements would have been a VFX task. And as, as already established, Andrew's team and 
great and everything else. But you were doing a lot of stuff that I would have traditionally thought of as VFX work in the environment of the the grading environment. So what gear were you using and how easy did you find to comp in skies when, um, as I say, that's traditionally a, a VFX role? Yeah, and it it is traditionally a, a VFX role, but what's quite uh, strange is you know the te- as technology evolves, um, uh, you know we were using the, the base light grading system, and I've been working on that for several years, and you know I've noticed that you know you can do some basic compositing and a few basic things, and so I mean there's no tool on base light for sky replacement or anything. It's using a mishmash of tools that make it kind of make it work. But um, but you can do it, and if you can, then why not? Because the big thing, uh, I do a lot of work in commercials, and the one thing that was always frustrating to me was I would you know I would work on a commercial and get a really nice look, you know, let's say it was a nice sort of pastel look or something, but I'm not doing the final finishing of it, so you know then often once we're graded, it goes off to a compositor who finishes everything off and puts all the supers on and does things. And then at that point, the client says, oh, we want to do a sky replacement. And then I don't know any different until I see it on air. And it's like, who put this ridiculous blue sky into this pastel look? And it was like, you know, <laughs> they did a nice job technically of replacing the sky, but it doesn't match the color and it's not done by a colorist. So, uh, you know, my theory then was, well, if I can do it in the grading suite, then why not? Because now I can control the color of it to match exactly what's going on. And, you know, while I'm working on the color, we can keep trying and you can change the sky or switch it out or do whatever we want just to kind of make that image work together as a whole and get that graphic look. So, uh, you know, because the tool set was there and we're able to do it, then I, I figured why not. What's quite ironic on this film is when I first started on the film uh, about, oh, I don't know, about 15 months, 15 months ago, um, you know, I took some test footage back with me and I started playing around and one of the shots it's actually I think it's actually in the film too one of the shots I had uh, was one of those foggy overcast days that we were talking about and uh, and I just kept trying to grade it thinking how do I make this saturated and it was just it was basically white and beige that's all I had in the image and I'm really trying everything and there was there's no shadows on the ground because it was overcast and you know I think so I was drawing patches of light on the on the sand to try and make it look like there's dappling from clouds or something. And it's, no matter what I did, I just couldn't get the image looking good. And, and I would draw like a bad, you know, blue grad in the sky and it just looked like someone colored gray sky blue. It doesn't look right. <laughs> and I, I tried everything and then I thought, oh, I've got to see if I can do a sky replacement. And I tried to track it. And this particular shot was so hard to track because there is absolutely, the camera is shaking all over the place. It's moving everywhere. There's vehicles crossing over every a spare bit of landscape you can get hold of and there's nothing in the sky to track it's just white and uh, i just i must have tracked that shot i don't know 25 times just trying different things and i was just like all right and i said to myself mental note do not bring up sky replacements <laughs> because because uh, once i go down this route i'm never going to be able to do it and uh and then i started on the film and of course 
you know, we kept, George kept saying, I want a really rich sky. And, and I was just, it just looks like cheap 1980s music videos with bad blue grads washed in there and it doesn't look right. And so I thought, oh, I'll just try a sky replacement on this one shot that was an easy shot. And of course it made the world a difference. And it suddenly everything came to life and we're like, oh, this is what we need to do. And then I just thought to myself, what, have I, what am I getting myself into? Because I know I can't do all of these. And so, you know, there were a few cases where we would ask visual effects to, um, to help out because they've got, they can probably do better tracking than what we could in the base light and spend a bit more time on it. But for the most part, we're able to do it. And, and eventually, you know, as I'm working my way through the film, that same shot came up again that I had tried. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. But I have to say, after about the 30th attempt, I managed to get a track. <laughs> so, just, and so finally, I got that sky in there. I was like, oh, thank God. Just, uh, um, just at a technical level for a second, if I can just drill down on the principle of that, because I've done sky tracks. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it's not tracking to foreground action, because the whole point of the sky is it's like a way, way behind almost anything you can track. And yet it does yes. pick up camera movement. So it's like it doesn't pick up some camera movement because it's so far away, but yet obviously on a pan it completely does. What was your yeah. uh, sort of general approach? Was there anything to terms of getting it in? Yeah. Was it some just done by hand? I mean, yeah. Well, it, you know, it's uh, it's there were a handful of shots I probably did by hand because they were um, just you know yeah. such fast action that you could get away with it. But for the most part, I you know it's exactly that. I would look for something in the background that. Um, I could latch on to. Sometimes there might be like, you know, a slight bit of definition between two clouds of a cloudy shot in the background that I could I could catch and actually track to the real sky that was in the shot. Sometimes it would be literally there'd be like one slightly larger pebble in the background on, on a piece of sand that I could lock onto or something. And so I'd always just try and look for something in the shot that I could I could latch to. Um, and where, and even if it was something in the foreground, sometimes I would track to the foreground element and then try and offset the parallax so it matched what was going on in the background. Right. Um, so it, you know, I guess it's whatever you would normally do uh, in terms of visual effects workflow. But um, uh, you know, with there's some limitations to what you can do in Baselight. It's you know, there's it's got some great trackers and it, it does work really well and it is very fast. You know, I can tell within about, usually about 10 minutes whether I'm, this sky is going to work or not. So it's, um, and then, it's pretty good. And then, and sorry. then how are you keying the foreground over the top? Cause you're not doing roto clearly. So, um, yeah, we are. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes we are doing roto. A lot of the times we're, we're, I was just really lucky because, you know, for the most part we're, replacing skies where the sky is just white. So in actual fact, it's it's like your perfect element to key a sky. So I can do a luminance key on the sky, key it in there, and it's generally not affecting anybody except maybe someone has a highlight shine on their head or something. I just Okay, now hang on, Eric. Out. You could get away with that with some press, but with me, I'm going to really push you on that because sure. you get white fringing and stuff on luminance keys. Luminance keys sound like the like it, but you put a black sky behind a white keyed, person and the light wrap and a whole lot of other things trip it up i think you were modeling a little bit what was going in there wasn't weren't you sort of just to like yeah I'm, and yes exactly i mean it, it really depends on the shot sometimes sometimes there were issues and it was too hard and you didn't i didn't want to get into rotoing so sometimes we would we would uh, just carefully put a cloud right behind that area <laughs> but uh uh, we didn't have to worry about it because, you know, it, in the end, it was better to have a sky in there than not have it at all. Um, 
So there's definitely a lot of cheats, and it's whatever we could get away with and would make a nice-looking image and, and still play in our heads that, that mantra of, like, keep it graphic. And um, let's, yeah, talk about, mean, I, let's talk about a shot then because one of the really graphic sequences that is so, like, graphic novelish, it's not funny, is I think it's the bullet farmer, Richard Carter's attack on the with the kind of um, tank-tracked car that comes up on the – on the team and he's, you know, blindfolded from being blinded. I'm not giving away any plot points here, I hope. And, <laughs> and he's firing uh, machine guns and stuff. And this is, um, this is presumably shot day for night, right? And it's very kind it of, but it's incredibly um, moody and interesting. Was the sky behind him white? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, um, in fact, the whole shot was very, uh, first of all, it was one of those shots that was overexposed a couple of stops, the way they shot day for night, which was just on a side note. I don't know if you if you have that if you want to get through that in more depth, but I, I absolutely um, will. But let's let, let's I'll, I'll swing back on that because I'm, I'm fascinated sure. by that. But yeah, go on. Um, so yeah, it was a very it's a very white looking shot uh, in general, um, and. Uh, you know, it's interesting, like those angles of the bullet farmer, that was something that George was, uh, had a very specific look for. You know, he wanted to, originally it was, you know, he was actually in the, the first uh, rough cut screenings. He had, uh, one of the, uh, um, I don't know, one of the colorists who was also helping out doing dailies and things, just put like a, a rudimentary kind of, circle vignette around him because he really wanted um, as if the bullet farmer you know had was emanating light or was receiving light from the heavens or something that was some kind of like other presence that was guiding him after he'd been blinded and um, so that was our kind of goal you know stylistically of like how do we do something with that and you know, George was relatively happy with just like having a sort of a, a circle vignette, but it just looked like a circle a vignette. vignette. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't look very good. So, uh, so I thought, well, what if the clouds? What if there were clouds behind him that were glowing and sort of you know lighting them up in in essentially a kind of a, a circle vignette behind him? You know, so that there's a bit more of a a backlight effect. And, uh, and it's one of those things, you know, with George, I find if you, if you do it and you show it to him, then he'll tell you whether he likes it or not. So you can't really, it's not worth trying to explain. I think you just got to do it. So that's what we did. And I, you know, I found a nice guy and I sort of drew around a bunch of clouds that I wanted to be brighter and glowed them up and made them brighter and, did a sky replacement on it and then put the look on and then, you know, with the night scene, you've got to drop the exposure of everything and grade it all blue and then roto the faces and lift it up and do all this stuff. It's a lot of detailed work. Um, but you've got this great look now, a very graphic look of this sort of, you know. It's almost like guy. religious iconography. It's so, you that's, know. Yeah, and that's exactly what we were going for. It was right. almost like he was getting a message from the heavens and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it was... Um, uh, yeah, uh, you know the only other thing I probably would have done if it were, if you know the other problem is we had to do this film in in stereo and 3D. But the only other thing I probably would have done is thrown some uh, light rays or something coming out, but it was too hard for me in color to do that. 
So, so uh, just by, before we go back to the data for night for a second, there is a lot, I mean, an enormous amount of um, face tracking, it seems, because otherwise John's managing to hold exposure inside and outside and high con. I just can't see how he could be doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, other than the day for night footage, I have to say the driving shots were one of my biggest challenges because even though there's this huge dynamic range on an ARRI raw file, um, that's great if you just want to leave it looking like an ARRI raw file. <laughs> but we need a, uh, you know, we need a very high contrast, saturated look. And it's almost like an HDR look. And so it's very difficult to get you know, extremely high contrast and rich and yet still see detail in the shadows and the highlights. But, um, you know, in George's mind, he didn't care how you do it, just make it happen. So a lot of that was uh, trying to work out how to hold exposure between the areas. And, and, and the only way to really get around some of it quite often is to is to roto a face or, or key things and lift them up in different areas. And, but you managed um, to do that without getting any of that ugly tone mapping look. So it wasn't just a matter of kind of compressing it, was it? No, and it's not it's not compressed as such. A lot of it is um, just literally, you know, digging bits up through shapes and, um, you know, just sort of re-exposing sections. And, and while I'm on that bit with the bullet farmer coming at them, I remember distinctly just being knocked out by just how wickedly good the eye light seemed to be on Ferosa. She just seemed to have her eyes were pinging and stuff. Were they just enhancements of what was there from John's work, or were you adding pings and stuff? Yeah, no, we. Uh, I think we. <laughs> it's quite funny. I think I think I've rotoed. You know probably every eyeball in the movie. Maybe there's a handful of shots I didn't. Uh, George is fascinated with the eyes for many reasons. Uh, and I think, you know, I think he's right in the sense that, uh, you know, 80% of the human brain looks at eyes when you look at a, a character on the screen. So if you want the audience's attention, you want to get into what they're thinking in their character, then you've got to go for the eyes. So... Um, almost every shot, we would roto the eyes and we weren't necessarily brightening them, but we were adding a lot of contrast to the eyes and also sharpening the eyes independently to the rest of the image. So, and when you sharpen the eyes, you'll, any kind of uh, light reflection in the eye, like a little ping of some sort, will suddenly get, uh, you know, when you, sh you know, when you put a sharpening uh, layer over something, it almost puts that, uh, well, it puts a kind of a black outline around everything and actually makes it look more contrasty and sharper than it is. And, you know, in the process of doing that, whatever little, you know, even if it's like a 50% little white dot in the eye, suddenly becomes almost like a 100% white dot. And you get, um, you get a very rich graphic eyeball. And that became something that once, once, you, once you do it once, now George wants it on every shot, so off we go throughout the film and start rotoing eyes. Was that was there sharpening or lack of it on the or sort of softening on any of the skin? Because I mean, obviously, it was pretty, it was pretty harsh film. So it wasn't like you were trying to make um, you know your lead actress look uh, all doughy and um, and stuff. But in terms of the skin away from the eyes, was that being? Um, no, well, we did we did a lot of work on sharpening the whole image overall. Um, one of the things that. Uh, 
we did is we, turned, we made sure we turned off all sharpening off the raw file from the ARRI raw so right. that we, we wouldn't end up sharpening a sharpened image. We didn't want to double sharpen anyway. So what we're working with in the grading suite quite often looked quite soft because there's, there's like, you know, an ARRI raw straight out of the camera has some sharpening on it. And when you turn it completely off, it actually looks quite soft. So we, we, we turned all that off so that we could apply it. And then we essentially maxed out the sharpness on the base light tool um, we wound it all the way to 11 and, uh, and had it at, you know, at full tilt. And then we could control just the radius of it. So we tried to keep a very thin radius, um, which only is a luminance sharpening, not a chroma sharpening and, um, and keep it sort of very high as an overall picture. But occasionally, you know, you would see some artifacting we would have to deal with because we were pushing it so hard. So we would, you know, window around certain areas and try and, you know, turn sharpening off in other areas. And uh, But that was another sort of um, request from George is, you know, part of the look he wants a very crisp, sharp, and then rich and saturated image just to stay away from the usual desaturated bleach soft thing. Was that Christmas enhanced or, I guess, sympathetic to the fact, like in the opening sequence when he's trying to escape and spectacularly fails it looked like we were looking at uh, maybe 22 frames a second which i know is something that george miller just loves was that stuff because that that tends to make things look sharper and stuff because there's sort of a um a more staccato sort of step to the to the motion so yeah. that was that happening in post or was that happening from camera uh it's all most of it's happening in post you know um uh everything ended up being shot at 24 frames but probably 80% of the film has been sped up to about 22 frames. So, uh, And who did that? Was that you? Uh, editorial would make that decision. No, 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 but I mean, um, who did the actual speed up? Uh, it, depend on the, it depended on the shot. Um, uh, Justin Tran, who is our DI, um, I can't think of his exact title. He's, he's like a, let's just call him our DI guru. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, who did all the conforms and looked after a lot of things and, and did a lot of processing. You know, he was using uh, Mystica uh, for processing the ARRI RAW. Right. And um, uh, we would work on, in color, we would actually just work on DPX frames uh, because visual effects wanted to receive DPX frames and that was the workflow we went with. And that's the 2.8K size DPX from the ARRI uh, RAW? Yeah, yes, yes. Because you were still doing repositioning, size. you were doing repositioning, yeah. so you'd have yes. the latitude, right? Exactly. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah. So, and if it was something uh, that the retime was relatively straightforward, he would do the 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 optical retime in Mystica. Um, sometimes there were some we just did in base light um, as a straight drop frame retime. And if it really liked the look of it, then we were staying with it. And others uh, were done through visual effects because it needed to go to visual effects anyway for some reason. Or maybe the read times were causing so many artifacts that needed painting. So therefore, that would become a visual effects shop. I, uh, I looked up Justin's title while you were speaking, and it's Digital Intermediate, Intermediate Supervisor. Um, and, there we uh, go. There you go. So, okay, so that brings us. Now we've got the technical on the camera. What's going on? I can discuss what I think is the elephant in the room, which is your day-for-night approach, which was, uh, quite frankly, just, I mean, I literally had someone tell me that three times before I'd believe them. So do you want to explain how you did day-for-night? Because it just broke every rule in the book. It, it kind of did break rules, I think. Um, 
So it was actually Andrew Jackson that really discovered this. He was the one really that suggested to John Seale to shoot um, about two to three stops overexposed. So I'm just going to underline that for a second. So you're trying to shoot stuff that looks on screen, dark, gloomy, very much, you know, you can't quite see what's going on because it's night, it's going to be bluey and blah, blah, blah. And Andrew, in his wisdom, is convincing John to shoot two or three stops overexposed, which in most people's minds would be white out, blown out. And then you're having to go from one to the other. Yes, that's exactly. It, it's a little bit crazy, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. Did you see that or have a conversation or did you just get dropped in that? I mean, obviously I have a lot of respect for Andrew, so don't get me wrong. And it works. It totally right. works on screen. Uh, yeah, essentially, essentially I, I, I got dropped into it. So, uh, you know, however they shot, I didn't really have a choice. Um, but it's quite... You know, he, I mean, I, I've dealt with things like this before and I, I would never think of doing it for a whole scene in a movie, but it's, uh, I have experienced the same thing he's talking about. When you roll off, the roll off on an overexposed shot is creamier and lighter and nicer than an underexposed shot. Um, so for for this kind of, uh, you know, shadow range, and because we're playing a scene that's running around it essentially in the shadows, it actually strangely makes sense. So the fact that the Ari has that extra latitude is the only reason this really worked. And it's, you know, the footage isn't necessarily to your eye, doesn't look like dramatically overexposed, but it is over what would be considered normal. And um, without, they were very careful watching um, uh, scopes just to make sure that they're not clipping. So never was, you know, if there was a, decision to be made, you know, to overexpose or to hold back the clipping, it was always hold back the clipping. It kind of um, speaks to the to the collaborative nature of the filmmaking process that you guys could all do that between, I mean, obviously leaving George out for a second, like you've got the camera department, the visual effects department and the grading team taking the film in a way that's theoretically irreversible, right? Like, I mean, you've overexposed it on set. You have to go back and reshoot if it all turned out to be wrong later. So clearly you guys were all collaborating well and, and there was a lot of trust there. Yeah. And, you know, when I first started grading the scene, it was a little bit of a shock because, you know, literally we have these people running around in full sunlight. Uh, there, there were shots, there's shots in the film with lens flares. People are literally squinting into the sun and there's a lens flare hitting the camera and it's two stops overexposed in full daylight. I'm like, how am I, how am I supposed to make this night? Um but it 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 worked, you know. But it does require. It's not not your typical, you know, one layer kind of grade. You can't just lower it down and go, hey, we're done. Uh, you know, as with a lot of day for night, the biggest giveaway is often skies, and um, and we weren't necessarily going for a very photorealistic night. We we tried it. It's one of the first things I tried. Is I took the whole night scene and I made it as photorealistic as I could, and um, you know, and it was a. It actually looked like night. It was a really good scene, except you couldn't see anything, <laughs> uh, so which is a bit of a problem for an action movie. So, uh, you know, we had to find a middle ground, and we we went a bit more stylized and more graphic with it instead. You know, we had versions where it was a little more desaturated and a little bit even more cyan, and then we ended up going into a very rich blue feel, and. Um, but we did. We carefully started the night. The night scene uh, 
when you first get introduced to night, it actually starts a little darker. And then, you know, over the progression of the next 20 to 30 shots, it actually gets a bit brighter. But nobody will, hopefully nobody notices that, but it's just a way of getting you into it, selling the idea of night, and then allowing, you know, it's almost like you've walked into darkness and your eyes are re-exposing for the night. Now you can see a bit more. And so the rest of the night plays a little brighter. So... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the character's name. The guy is playing uh, guitar that has a you know flamethrower at the end of it and the biggest uh, yep. Marshall stack behind him. Yeah, um, I don't know what the character's name is, but um, Como. Como. Okay, right. So, so there were shots. I don't seem to remember where they were. Uh, like his rig was visible, but there were lights and stuff that seemed to be having beams of light that were reading the way beams of light read at night. Was that because you? there was enough dust around that you were kind of getting something or did all those beams have to be added in post? Um, some were added in post. It depends on the shot. A lot of, a lot of the shots, uh, for the most part, all the day for night sh- was shot in the middle of the day. Whenever there were trucks or vehicles with headlights, they tried to shoot at kind of late afternoon dusk so that the, the headlight would at least be bright enough to register against the daylight. Um, so some of those shots were shot, um, uh, you know, at dusk. So there is actually headlights on that are actually creating some kind of lighting. Uh, and then some of them, you know, there were still some that weren't and we just, I added in headlights and lens flares and, and, you know, tried to match it with what we had in the dusk for night scenes. But I mean, the middle of the day in Namibia in, in Africa, it's got to be really harshly bright. Uh, yeah, it just yeah. seems remarkable. It, it it's <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, some sometimes you get shots that just worked really well, and there were ones that were absolute uh, struggles. And um, you know that 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 whole section where you're talking about the guy on the guitar, Como. You know, that stuff was a little trickier because you know his character is supposed to have a, a spotlight shining on him throughout the yeah. sort of whole scene. And of course, you know, there's two shots in there that were shot at dusk and then the rest are all just in the middle of the day. And so, yeah, there's, you know, I've added some lens flares and uh, kind of tracked in some sort of fake beams and done some other things on some of those shots because we have to kind of carry through that idea and the selling of night. Uh, and they're heavy rotos for color because we literally have to, you know, cut them out and change his color and make him the only thing lit and colored in the rest of this very graphic blue scene. Um, one of the hallmarks of his, you know, rig was this uh, flamethrower that came out the end of his guitar. And I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to sound critical on anything, but one of the like very vivid grading aspects seemed to be the red richness of the flames that came out. At least I assume that's the case. I don't know what material they were firing out of that sucker. But were you managing to just pick up what was there and make it really vivid or was it yeah, somehow Yeah, we're just just picking up on what's there and um uh yeah we would any time there were flames or any kind of you know it comes back to that keep it graphic, keep it graphic, keep it graphic yeah. mantra that we had. You know, whenever there was something that we could really play on, we would we would pull it out as much as we could. You know, so I, mean, there are, that, I was going to say, there's also that big explosion in the first run through the valley kind of thing, through the ravine where the bomb, uh, the back section the bikers up. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And, you know, I, the explosions, 
uh, were shot really well. They weren't too clippy. They held in really well. So you could, I could easily key them and just drop them down a little bit and grab the color and push it, and it all fell into place pretty, pretty well. Um, on the IMDb rundown of the sort of tech of the film, it mentioned 5D Mark IIs. I'm assuming they were crash cams. Um... Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, like, you know, you see a shot under, mounted underneath the car or something like that. There's, there's a handful of, um, you know, unusual positions for cameras that were thrown in there. How hard was it to get those? Because, I mean, there's absolutely no way that the latitude of the I assume they were recorded on camera, which was like an eight-bit recording. This is going to stack up against an ARRI RAW file. No, they're not. Then they're not great. But so long as you get the, uh, you know, we're we're just pushing everything so hard anyway, and we're just grading it, you know, drawing shapes and painting it with color and whatever we can do. So with those shots, you know, a lot of a lot of them are pretty quick, and we would just grade them and match them as best well, we can. Well, a lot and, of know, the shots got, in the whole film are very quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of the shots, these five D shots, I would, you know, I'm looping and I'm cringing because I know they look terrible and compressed, and uh, but you know, and then you watch it as a scene, and you're like, oh yeah, it's fine, you know. So they're not the greatest thing, and everybody knew that, but it's a good angle and it's a good moment and, and you know, we've got to have that angle. So we would put up with a little less quality for it. We, um, we mentioned sharpening and reframing and stuff, but the shots in the trailer seem to be dramatically, well, not dramatically, but, you know, seriously uh, graded for the trailer in, I mean, the shots in the film were great, of course, but it seemed like you'd very much done your own grade for the trailers. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We pushed, uh, we probably pushed the trailer a touch more than the actual film. Uh, you know, a lot of the shots in some of the trailers are literally like three frames long. So yeah. you've got three frames to register something. So we would just crank it to the max um, just to try and get that, you know, graphic punch for those few frames. Um, but also, I, you know, in a trailer, I mean, generally we would start for the trailers, we would always start with whatever, wherever we were at with the film at that time that that trailer came out. That's what we would put in the trailer. But then it's, I think it's always a good idea. Uh, trailers always cut slightly out of sequence. It's always, you know, they cut to a reaction of someone that's actually from three scenes earlier than the one that they're cutting to and, and things like that. So, you know, some of the shots didn't really match. I mean, in the first trailer, there's a shot of Max straight after his car flips over, but he's actually in that car. He's not really looking at himself. <laughs> you know, these shots are just cut together, but you, you know, in the trailer they work, but they're from two completely different scenes. Um, so I remember George so, talking years ago at a, at a talk I went to, and he was talking, and literally I'm bringing up this trailer for this reason. He was talking about how he thinks about where my eye is looking as an audience member so that after the cut, I'm not having to suddenly swing to the other side of the screen to make sense of it, and therefore I've lost, you know, the first beat of the next shot. And yep. so it's very particular. So like you're not grading shots in isolation; you're grading shots shot to shot. Hence, if you change the order in the trailer, you've, I presume, doing exactly the same thing, right? Doing almost separate repos and stuff because they have to work over the cut. I mean, he really works yep. over the cut. Yep. Yeah. We're always working always looking at a cut and looking at it in sequence and uh you know and that ex that exact thing happened you know we had a trailer and then something happened someone didn't like a shot somewhere and it gets switched out and we've got to start again now that shot isn't going to work so let's make sure we trim the shots around it and make sure everything looks looks good um a lot of this film 
is, I mean, I mean, John Seals probably already talked about it with you, but is framed centrally. Everything is framed in the middle, um, which is quite smart for a film with so many shots and so much action that the you as the audience, you don't have to be scanning this 235 frame looking left and right and getting lost in action. So a lot of the hero action will take place right in the middle of the frame. Um, and there's a lot of work in editorial to make sure that your eye will travel to exactly the right place and, and follow the next item. And, you know, if a car does move from left to right and happens to be on the right-hand side of frame, the next cut will help you get from the right-hand side of the frame back towards the middle again. And, um, and yeah, every, everybody from editorial to color to to the cinematography, everybody paid attention to that to try and make the action flow as good as it could. So, Eric, I'm, I'm so in awe of just how much work you've done on this film. Can you just give us some rundown on how long you were working on the project? Uh, <clears throat> well, that's the, that's the beauty of this film. It's, um, it's very rare. Most films you get, like, you know, three or four weeks or a month or something to work on a film. But uh, I was very lucky on this film to have, you know, close to 15 months to grade this. Not that it's a full-time job over 15 months, but uh, you know, I started in uh, about February 2014, and here we are in May 2015. So, you know, something around that, you know, 12, 13, 14 months. Um, but a lot of it, you know, I went to Sydney and you know sat with George and talked about looks and experimented and tried a few things and got the ball rolling and and then. You know, I came back. I live in Toronto, so I came back to Toronto and uh, uh, worked here at Alter Ego and just tried to do a lot of, you know, work and get stuff in place. And the big problem that we knew going into it was the day for night we knew was going to be tricky and we knew it was going to be a lot of roto and a lot of detailed work. So that's really what I spent most of my time on is just trying to get the day for night working. And then, you know, we, we also had a uh, system uh, we have a system at Alter Ego called Studio Link, which we can do live interactive grading. So we would actually do sessions and beam them over to George in Sydney so he could sit in the theater and we could interactively grade and and make decisions if we're at a crucial, you know, sticking point about where to go and uh, and get feedback from him and then continue on the meticulous task of, you know, rotoing and cutting out eyeballs. And then... Um, and then I came back to Sydney two other times to sit with George and do more one-on-one grading. And eventually we finished. But with the great uh, luxury of this film is being able to, you know, we kept coming back and revisiting because we had so much post-production time up our sleeve. So it was great to sort of, you know, get a scene where we thought it was pretty good and put it to bed and then work on the next scene and get other stuff in shape and then have the ability to come back months later and go, all right, let's look over what we did on Spool 1 again and see if we can get it better. I'm not obsessing about the bullet farmer shots because obviously they're just one small part of the film, but as we've been discussing them, it seems like a good place to ask this question. For a sequence like that, that attack, um, which is just a normal part of the film, it's not the hero, it's not the finale, it's just in the middle there somewhere. How long would you spend on a sequence like that, do you think? Um, you know, that sequence took, a, um, I mean, it took over a course of about two or three months, but it wasn't full time, you know, I'm still, I have a day job of doing commercials and other things. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to do like a day a week or something. So in, you know, all up, it probably took, you know, if I was doing it full time, it would probably take about three weeks or something like that. Right. Um, 
but um, yeah, I mean, surprisingly, it, you, it was funny. You would come across some shots in that night sequence that would that were very easy to put together and would would just fall into place. And and of course, then you always get those odd shots that there is no way around this shot other than roto everything, and uh, that just takes time. So you've clearly learned a lot of lessons or developed a lot of new techniques on this film. Is there anything that, you know, if you were doing it over, you'd do differently? Was there any sort of particular thing that sort of struck you as, wow, knowing now what I know, I'd tackle this? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there were a lot of technical things that, you know, if we had our time over, we would do it again. We had a few weird pipeline things that we probably shouldn't have, done and you know visual effects often came back different colors to the original neg and things like that and it just meant regrading the shot again and then you know someone would change something else and we come back another color again and so we had lots of weird color shifts happening between versions of shots uh that you know we kind of knew why it was happening but it was just kind of no one had quite thought that we would go down that route the way we did so we ended up with these these issues, but it was too late to change that pipeline. Um, and an interesting on a film like this, the speed ramps were one of the big problems for me, anyway, because I'm trying to keep throughout the whole process. I'm trying to keep a, you know an up-to-date current grade on the whole film, so that every time there's a screening, there's some kind of grade happening, or visual effects can look at a shot under a grade or something like that. Um, but you know, you've got all these um, versions coming in. You've got all kinds of stuff happening, and edits changing constantly and one of the troublesome things is the fact that you know suddenly edit would decide that this shot should be uh, uh, speed changed to 22 frames a second or something i've just spent you know three days rotoing these characters and <laughs> now the source file is coming in and it's now a completely different frame rate and it's just like oh right then so now i go and reframe it i go and re-roto it all because you know my my, I have yep. a new visual effects source file because it had to be done through visual effects. And then, of course, edit changes again. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to go back to the other one. Or we're going to change it at a different speed again or something else. So stuff like that was a little frustrating. And there's no real, there wasn't really the technology or anything that was uh, an easier way of working around that issue. Um, ironically, Baselight, they're actually doing, you know, optical retiming and stuff like that. But the plugin <laughs> wasn't ready for the film. <laughs> um, so... You know, if we go into another film, then uh, that's something I'd definitely want to look into is like see how many of those retimes you can do uh, in the grade rather than having your source file change on you all the time. Right. So you can, in fact, do the retime after you've done your roto, not not. Yeah. I mean, even the same thing, you know, Baselight have written uh, the the Baselight plugin for Nuke, uh, you know, which we're using at Alter Ego, which is which is great. But again, it wasn't ready for this movie, but this movie would have been a perfect case for that where. If we all just work to the raw file and visual effects are working to the raw file and colors working to the raw file, then um, you know I can they can have the grade and visual effects and they can see how it's looking and and I can get the visual effects back and put it into the grade and you know the source media is not changing constantly, which is the problem we kept having. Right. Well, uh, you know, the end of the day, I'm sitting in the theater, kind of on the edge of my seat for what felt like the whole film. <laughs> Um, and there's like one fade to black that let me have a kind of a breathing space and then we're off to the races again so uh, yeah it's a terrific success so well done yeah it's I think it's um, 
it's a it's it's a, you don't yes, you're exactly right you do not get a lot of chance uh to rest in this movie um but it's i think that's what makes it great it's a, it's a it's a high octane action film Yes, yes, uh, with a with a kick-ass soundtrack and a really impressive colour grade that uh, really ties it all together. So again, thank you so much for taking time to walk through us and congratulations. No worries, thank you. Well, as always, I really want to thank Andrew and Eric for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it's, it's, it's really great to hear. I, I went to see this film and I was not expecting, I didn't know what to expect. I had expected it to be kind of a an orgy of... Uh, chase scenes and uh, I wasn't really knowing what to expect and I just found myself I think you'll find on the internet there's a lot of split opinions about this film people don't have a lukewarm opinion it's either loved it or hated it and uh, I found myself really enjoying the film I thought that the the techniques and the the color and um, the action the the, the conversation that Andrew had about you know the director really being careful to focus the eye there were so many you you really couldn't look away because you you felt like you were going to miss something and, and that that attention to detail to keep your eyes. So you, you, I never felt lost in the film. Uh, I think Mike said that too. And I think that's so important in a film like this where it was just nonstop action and, and just a beautiful film. So I hope you get a chance to see it. And that'll do it for this podcast. We also have uh, other podcasts you can check out, like I mentioned at the beginning, over at fxguide.com slash podcasts. And uh, we also have the FX Insider program, which you can check out at fxguide.com slash FX Insider. So check all that out, and uh, we'll see you on the next FX Podcast. I'm Jeff Huser for my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.